For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those words will be read at many church services around the world today, but there will be many churches where they serve as an introduction to a sermon about eldership, And yet those are important words to begin with this morning. I've tried to emphasise throughout this whole process that we want the focus to be on God, not man. We want the focus to be on the good shepherd and how he cares for his flock uh, through the under shepherds that he equips and calls. It's my aim as a minister that every sermon I preach would be God-centred and not man-centred. Even when we've been looking at passages that get into the nitty gritty of what an elder should be like, uh, as we have been the last couple of weeks, I've tried to show how these characteristics are, are things that the Holy Spirit works in us to make us more like Jesus. And the reason we started today with Isaiah 9 verse 6 is because of that promise in the middle of it that the government shall be upon his shoulder. The reason that Isaiah 9 is often read at this time of year is that it's so clearly a prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Even though it was written 700 years before he was born. The descriptions of him in this verse are especially familiar if you've ever heard Handel's Messiah. And right in the middle of this verse we have the prophecy that the government shall be upon his shoulder. Those are well known words but they're not always well understood. And in a way that's understandable because when we see the word government, we think of the government, we think of Boris Johnson, we think of 10 Downing Street, of by-elections, of Nicola Sturgeon. Someone said to me fairly recently that they'd always understood this verse to mean that Jesus would be persecuted by the government of his day, that the government would be on his shoulder in the sense that they would be on his back. And that, that is an understandable interpretation But actually the word government here is talking about Jesus' own rule, about his dominion. When it says that the government will be on his shoulders, it means that the the ruling authority will rest on his shoulders. It means that he will exercise God's royal rule as the one who is both mighty God and Prince of Peace. So Jesus Christ exercises God's royal rule. In verse 7, he sits on the throne of David from this time forth and forevermore. But unlike all the previous occupants of that throne, he won't be a disappointment. So Jesus Christ rules and reigns today. But where is his invisible rule made visible? Well, it's made visible in the church It's made visible in in rescuing people from darkness. uh, And it's also made visible in how the church is run. That's something we looked at in our second sermon on elders. We asked the question, why elders? And we saw three reasons. The second of which was that Jesus as king rules through them. 
Jesus' rule is made visible in the churches people are admitted into and removed from church membership. Why did the Covenanters in the 1600s have banners that said for Christ's crown and covenant? One of the reasons was because Christ's authority in the church was being disregarded through men being put in leadership positions in the church who never should have been. An attempt to interfere with the running of the church is an attempt to interfere with the government of Jesus Christ. And in light of that, I want in the first half of our sermon today to consider some of the biblical words for eldership in detail before we move on, secondly, to look at how elder election should work in practice. So firstly today we want to look at elders, bishops and overseers. Elders, bishops and overseers. The historical context of the Scottish Covenanters is significant for two reasons. Uh, Firstly it's significant because in their day kings were trying to control the church. Uh, These kings wanted to take the government off the shoulders of Jesus Christ uh, and put it on their own shoulders. Uh, They wanted to say what happened in the church, how the church worshipped and so on. But it's also significant, uh, the historical context is also significant because of how they went about trying to control the church. And that was by appointing a church leader that the Bible knows nothing of. If you're a king trying to control a church, then you're not going to like Presbyterianism. Uh, That is church government by elders such as we have. Because if each individual congregation is is headed up by multiple elders and if the higher courts of the church, uh, there are just more and more elders as you go up, then it's not that there's a couple of key guys that the king can control uh, and use to run the rest of the church. And so kings tend to prefer church government by bishops and archbishops. Where there are are bishops who will rule over all the churches in a certain geographical area. So for example you have the Bishop of Galloway. uh, And then in turn he and other bishops will be under the authority of one archbishop. And if the king has the archbishop in his pocket. Then the archbishop can choose bishops who are going to do what, what he the archbishop tells them to do. Who in turn will choose ministers who will do what the bishop will say. And the whole thing is sewn up. If the king can control one guy, he can really control the whole system. It's a system of church government that's top down rather than bottom up. And it makes the church a lot easier for a king to control. In fact, James VI of Scotland had a famous slogan, No bishop, no king. He said that if the bishops were put out of power, he didn't know what would happen to his supremacy. If there were no bishops, he thought he wouldn't be king anymore. Because the ability to rule over the church, which he shouldn't have had in the first place, would have been taken from him. And so to move away from how the Bible says the church should be governed, uh, that is by elders, has serious consequences. Not not that there aren't believers in in church systems with bishops and archbishops and so on. Uh, Some of you may may know J.C. Ryle, or may know of him. He was a a bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s, a a great and godly man. Uh, Has written many helpful things, but 
But, but that system is dangerous because it opens up the church to state interference. Now, depending on what version of the Bible you're following along in, that might raise questions. If you've been following along the last couple of weeks in the, the King James or New King James Version, uh, then when we've read from 1 Timothy 3, you'll have seen the word bishop, whereas the Bibles we use in church today, uh, probably all other uh, versions use the word overseer. Uh, an overseer is actually a better translation. One of the things that's not so well known about the King James version of the Bible is that King James set out certain rules that the translators had to follow. Now that doesn't mean that it's a bad translation. It doesn't mean that the king had any influence over 99.9% of their translation work. But there were a few things that they had to do. And one of those rules was that the old ecclesiastical, uh, that is church related words, had to be kept. And Bishop would obviously have been in that category. Remember this is the same king who said no Bishop, no King. But Overseer is a better translation. Because that's what the word actually means. The word Bishop is just an English version of the Greek word Episcopus. Which means to watch over. So it's an English form of a Greek word but it doesn't tell you what the word actually means. But the word just means to watch over. And actually, if you go to the list of qualifications in the book of Titus, all Bible versions use the word elder there. So even though in, in some versions you'll have a list of qualifications for a bishop in one place and a list of qualifications for an elder in another place, the two lists have so much overlap that they're clearly talking about the same office. An elder is a bishop, is an overseer. Uh, there's no distinction in fact, Titus uses both words in quick succession. He uses the word elder in verse 5 and then the word overseer or bishop in verse 7. Or if you go to Acts chapter 20, we read that Paul calls together the Ephesian elders and he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or bishops. The word elder describes who the men are and the word bishop or overseer describes what they do. So if we want to, to use that, that word fine but there is no concept in the New Testament of a bishop who has higher authority than an elder. There is no concept of, of a bishop who will rule over all the churches in a certain geographical area. And just while we're on the word elder, does that mean that elders have to be a certain age? That's certainly the, the origins of the word. It's a, an Old Testament word originally. We're first introduced to the elders of Israel way back in chapter 3. But at the same time, Paul tells Timothy, who's an elder, let no one despise you for your youth. Most churches don't have a problem with ministers in their mid to late 20s. And ministers are simply full-time elders with a particular responsibility for teaching. So I don't think we can say that a, a teaching elder can be in his 20s, but, but a ruling elder uh, must be in his 50s or, or 60s. And yet there should be a maturity about an elder. Maturity in every way, but particularly spiritually. He should stand out among others his own age and even among many who are older as well. 
So elders, bishops and overseers, that's the first time we've really gone into detail about what those words are about. But it's important to see that they all describe the same office. Now at this point we've had uh, six and a half sermons on who elders are, why we have elders on their responsibilities and qualifications. And for the rest of our time now I want to answer the question, well what happens next? I want to talk through the process of how we go from thinking and praying about eldership to God willing having an elder elected and ordained. So secondly this morning, how should an elder election be conducted? How should an elder election be conducted? Elder elections aren't things that happen every year or every few years. So this isn't a process that people in any congregation are going to be overly familiar with. But particularly in our own congregation, we did have an elder here back in 2016 when Gerald was elected as an elder. But before that, you have to go back about 45 years before that to the previous one. Uh, so the rest of our time this morning is going to be focused mainly on the practicalities. Uh, because it would, be, it would be foolish to, to assume that, that people understand those things. Because we haven't had elder elections very often. But though we're going to focus on the practicalities, that doesn't mean we're going to shut our Bibles. Because the Bible doesn't just tell us that we should have elders. It doesn't just tell us what sort of men they should be. It also gives us principles for how elders should be appointed. One of the key principles of Presbyterianism is the right of congregations to choose their own leaders. The Scottish Covenanters were so opposed to bishops, not just because they saw the office as unbiblical, but because these were unelected men being imposed on the church. Who in turn would appoint more unelected men? One of the most famous Covenanter ministers, Alexander Henderson, wasn't actually a Christian when he became a minister. It's possible to be a church member without uh, being a, a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. It's possible to be an elder without being a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. It's possible to be, to be a minister. Uh, but, but it's a great story. Uh, when he first became a minister, he, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, he was imposed on a church against their will. And so they locked the door to stop him coming in. Uh, but he climbed in the window. Uh, but, but he was converted shortly after when he secretly went uh, to hear the famous Robert Bruce preaching in John 10 verse 1. Truly, truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And he was convicted and converted. So ministers can't be imposed on congregations. That is what happens if, if there's a system where there's a bishop, the bishop decides, but but biblically, uh, that shouldn't be what happens. If a congregation doesn't have a minister, then the congregation has the right to call a minister of their own choice. Presbyterianism doesn't have a central authority that picks ministers for congregations. Congregations elect their own ministers, and it's the same with elders. So wh where do we see that in the Bible? Well, if we were just to look at how 
elders specifically were elected. We have a little bit to go on, not a huge amount. Uh, Acts 14.21 is a passage we looked at earlier on in this series. It says of Paul and Barnabas, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So it says that Paul and Barnabas appointed them. But does that mean that Paul and Barnabas picked them? Uh, That Paul and Barnabas just decided who were going to be elders and the congregation had no say in the process? Well, I don't think that's what the verse is saying. For a start, the word appointed, it could just mean ordained. That's how it's translated in the King James Version, in which case it wouldn't be saying anything about how they were chosen. But actually the word appointed in Greek literally means stretch out the hand. Stretch out your hand in the sense of voting in an assembly or a parliament. So that's where the word comes from. Its original meaning was to elect in the sense of people putting up their hands to show whether they approve or not. But it is always dangerous to build a case for something just on what a word originally meant. Uh, If you try and explain the word butterfly to someone by breaking it down into the words butter and fly but uh, people try and do that with words in the bible all the time Uh, but just because a word originally meant something it doesn't mean that it always means that Uh, so there's there's i think there's a good indication uh, in the word that's used that an election is in view Uh, but rather than build our whole case on the meaning of one word if we go to acts chapter 6 we actually get a clearer picture of the process uh, when we look at the election of the first deacons. So Acts chapter 6, it'll be helpful to have that open in front of you, particularly verse 3. God willing, it won't be too long before we're in a position to hold an election of deacons. Elders are responsible for the spiritual oversight of a congregation, whereas deacons are responsible for practical oversight and mercy ministry. Sadly, the office of deacon has fallen out of use in some reformed churches, including many RP churches. I presume, I presume that there were deacons at some point in the history of this congregation, but you probably have to go back a hundred years or more to find them. But while it's not ideal, it is possible for churches to function without deacons. Uh, the New Testament church did so up until Acts chapter 6. Elders can do the work of deacons if need be. Uh, The apostles were doing it for for a while. But it's not possible for churches to function without elders. So as I say, hopefully it won't be too long before we're able to come back to, to this passage and similar passages to see specifically what they have to say about deacons. Uh, hopefully this, this election that we're planning to have in January won't be, won't be the last one that we have for a long time and we'll be able to come back and have an election for deacons. But for now, we, we just want to see what this chapter tells us about the process of how elections were carried out in the church because the principles here can be applied to the election of elders as well as deacons. So what process do they use there in verse 3? Well, we see in verse 3, the apostles say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
So the apostles decide that an election is needed. They set the number of men who they believe is required, in this case seven. They list the qualifications that the men are to have. And then they tell the people to pick seven men who meet those qualifications. And finally, after that's done, the apostles appoint them. Which, by the way, is a different Greek word from the word for appoint in Acts 14. So so this isn't a point in the sense of stretching out the hands. So there you have the apostles who are the the equivalent of the existing elders in a church today. They call for an election. They, They say how many people are needed. They tell the people what the criteria are. And at the end of the process, they're the ones who ordain those who are chosen. But the choice of the men is left up to the people. And that's really important. Now that doesn't mean that the existing elders can't give guidance. The last time we had an elder election here, Session nominated a man. Uh, and that's the, that's the historic Scottish practice. There's a quote about it on the handout. So last time we held an elder election here, I nominated Gerald on behalf of Session, which at the time consisted of, of myself and three interim elders. So if the existing elders believe that there is a man or men in the congregation who meet the qualifications, they can nominate him. And they can give guidance to the congregation in that way. Uh, just as if a minister needs to be called, the, the elders can say, look, we think this man is suitable, but the congregation have the option of, of nominating someone else. But the elders of a church can't appoint a man they can't ordain a man without the consent of the people they can suggest but they can't appoint and at that last meeting in 2016 i also gave the opportunity for other men to be nominated as elders no one else was nominated but even if the current session nominate a man There always has to be the opportunity for any other male member not under discipline to be nominated. But nor does someone being elected by the congregation mean that they automatically become an elder. We see in Acts chapter 6 that the congregation choose and then the apostles appoint. But the apostles wouldn't have appointed a man who they didn't believe met the qualifications even if he'd been chosen by the congregation. Now for that to happen is rare. Our book of government says that if the existing elders choose not to ordain a man elected by the congregation there must be a very good reason for doing so. But it does happen occasionally. It happened in our own denomination in the last few years. A man got the necessary votes from a congregation but the the current elders felt that he wasn't qualified. Uh, It's very rare but it does happen. That is a hard, hard situation for everyone involved. But a congregational vote in and of itself doesn't make someone an elder. Ephesians 4.11 tells us that only Jesus Christ can make someone an elder. It says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. A congregation's role is to recognise Jesus' provision by voting for a man who God has called and equipped. 
But if the existing elders think that the congregation have got it wrong, or if the existing elders perhaps know something about a man that would disqualify him that the rest of the congregation don't, then they can't proceed to the ordination. And it should be said as well that a man who is elected as an elder can turn it down. That's not something that should be done lightly either. Uh, but maybe a man might be a, a member of the church and willing to submit to a particular doctrine contained in our confession of faith. But he's not actually convinced of it by himself. For example, someone could be a member of our church if they weren't convinced that we should only praise God using psalms. Someone could absolutely be a member of the church if, if they weren't convinced that was the only way to praise God. But they couldn't become an elder if they couldn't, in good conscience, sign up to, to our written standards. I've heard of men in the past who, who weren't convinced of infant baptism and they were elected as an elder, uh, but they didn't take it on. They were happy to be members of the church, but because uh, they, weren't, they weren't convinced of something that was part of the, the written standards of the church, then they didn't take on that rule. So that's some biblical principles for any elder election, uh, not, not just the one we're planning to have in January. You know, hopefully we'll have more elections here, uh, both of elders and deacons. Hopefully after uh, January we'll not have to wait another 48 years until the next elder election. So that's all uh, general principles. But for the last five minutes or so, I want to talk through the specifics of the elder election we're planning to have here in January. As I announced at the beginning today, God willing, we're going to have the election on Tuesday, the 18th of January at 7 o'clock. One of the reasons we're announcing the date a month beforehand is to encourage you to do whatever you can to be there, if at all possible. I don't think I can overemphasize how important that getting another elder of our own is to the future of our congregation. Hopefully the sermon series has made clear how important the office of elder is. No elder election in any congregation is ever a small thing. It's never an insignificant thing. It's never a routine thing. But at the same time, if a congregation has four or five ruling elders already and they're just hoping to get one or two more, it's, it's not that big a deal if they don't manage it. Uh, but here we, we only have one ruling elder of our own. And so for the long-term future of the congregation, it is vital that we add to that number. Now, if you can't physically be here on the 18th of January, you can still take part in the election. That is, if you're a church member, uh, being involved in choosing office bearers is one of the privileges of being a church member. And so if you haven't taken that step yet, but you're considering it, that's another reason to commit to the church. That you get a say in, in who the church calls when it comes to elders, deacons, ministers. But even if you're not a member of the church, you're still welcome to come to that meeting and, and watch. We're, we're, not the, we're not the Masons. Uh, we, don't have, we don't have secrets. But if you are a member of the church and you're not physically able to be at the meeting, it's possible to appoint someone else to vote in your place. It's known as proxy voting. 
So, for example, if a wife was unable to come, her husband could come and he would be given two voting slips, one for him and one for his wife. And obviously she would tell him beforehand how she wanted him to, to, to vote in her place. That's just an example. You don't have to be related to someone to have them vote for you. Anyone can vote for another member who's unable to be here as long as you put it in writing to the elders beforehand that you want them to act for you in your absence. And we'll give out forms near the time which make this really easy. We'll have a box for your name, a box for the name of the person you want to vote on your behalf and then you sign it and give it to Gerald or myself. And if you can't be here then arranging for someone else to do that for you is really important. Because this is a process that the whole congregation needs to be involved in. In fact, our, our book of government says that unless at least 75% of the membership take part in the process, either by coming on the night or by appointing someone else to vote for them, then the election can't go ahead. To put it in concrete numbers, that could mean that if we had uh, four or five members who... who, who who didn't come on the night or, or didn't nominate someone to vote for them, then the election couldn't go ahead. Now, I, I trust that if you're a member of the church, that's something that you, you want to be involved in anyway. These things don't come around very often. They're, they're so important for the future of the church. But, but I do want to flag that up. Then in terms of the, the number of elders we want to elect, as we did last time, we as a session have decided that again we would like to add one man to the eldership at this point. We saw how the apostles asked the people to pick out seven men as deacons. We're asking you to pick out one man as an elder. Also, as we did last time, we as the existing elders plan to nominate a man who we believe meets the biblical criteria for eldership and that man is James Fraser. That's something that all three of us as current elders were able to agree to. Ordinarily Peter uh, who's in Edinburgh wouldn't know a huge amount about a man in our congregation as he's not able to be here very much uh, but James and Katie spent several years as part of the North Edinburgh congregation so uh, Peter knows James well from his time there. Now obviously if Gerald and I had both been agreed on a name and Peter didn't know them overly well, Peter would have been happy to go with, with what we said as the, the elders on the ground here. But it is nice that in this case Peter was able to agree to the decision on the basis of actually knowing James. So on the night of the elder election either Gerald or myself will nominate James Though there will be the opportunity for any member to nominate any other male member. And then we'll come to a vote. In order to be elected a man has to get 75% of the votes of those who participate in the process. So 75% of the membership need to uh, participate in the process either through being there on the night or nominating someone else to vote for them. And then in order to be elected, a man needs to receive 75% of that 75%, if that makes sense. So 75% so of the congregation need to be involved in the process. And then of that 75%, a man needs to get 75%, uh, three quarters of the vote to be elected. So hopefully that's 
clear, uh, but if anyone has any questions about any part of the process, uh, Gerald or myself will be happy to try and shed more light on it. So that's the plan for Tuesday the 18th of January, God willing. What happens between now and then? Well, we need to be praying, don't we? I was struck this week by that bit in Acts 14 where it talks about appointing elders with fasting and prayer. That's something I would strongly encourage us to do over the next month. To set aside a specific time, either a day or a morning, to fast and pray about this. That's a a pattern we see in the Bible. Fasting, it doesn't earn us favour with with God, but it's something we see people doing when there are are, uh, particularly important decisions uh, coming. Uh, And prayerfully consider over the next month whether you think there is a man in the congregation who, who meets the criteria for eldership we've talked about. The reason we, we've announced our intention to nominate James today is so that you can prayerfully consider whether you think he fits the biblical criteria. And if you want to listen back to any of the sermons in the series in light of today's announcement, they're all on our website. Uh, we as a session believe that James is a man that God has equipped for this role. And so we're asking you to, as a congregation, to prayerfully consider whether you share that verdict. And above all, uh, both in the next month and and beyond that, keep your eyes on on the Good Shepherd. Uh, Because as I've said uh, many times throughout the process, uh, men are flawed, your your existing elders are are flawed, any new elders that God gives us here in the years to come will be flawed. Uh, We will let you down, but, but he won't. So keep your eyes on the Good Shepherd. Amen. Well, let's now look to the Good Shepherd as we sing in closing Psalm number 80, Psalm 80 on page 181, singing verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6 to the tune 280, Psalm 80, 1 and 2 and 5 and 6. It's the psalm that we sang after our first sermon about eldership. And as we sing it, let's pray that the shepherd of all Israel would send under shepherds. That in verse 2, the days of his wrath would come to an end. That in verses 3 and 4, he would continue to build and repair his church here. That in verse 5, God would uh, continue to care for the flock here through elders that he would choose. And in verse 6, that just as God's hand was on Jesus, it would also be on men in this community, both now and in the years ahead, strengthening them for this task. So Psalm 80 verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6 will stand and sing praise. <laughs> 